contact, making, contact. Making, making, making contact. I'm Anita Johnson, and this week on Making Contact, we're heading to California with the podcast 70 Million to talk about so-called quality of life laws that criminalize homeless individuals in a cycle of poverty and incarceration and how groups are breaking the cycle. Here's 70 Millions, Sarah McClurk with a report. All right, everybody here, everybody here. It's early, just before 7 a.m. I'm in South LA in a room with about a dozen team members at Project 180's office. Project 180 is a nonprofit that provides mental health and substance abuse treatment services, working primarily with criminal justice populations. They're one of several partners working with the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office under a program called LA Door. That's LA Deflection Outreach and Opportunities for Recovery for this podcast. Mr. Dawson, he was supposed to show up on Wednesday for his intake. At their office this morning, everyone is sharing the status of clients or individuals the team is helping. Okay, mental health. Um, I have three assessments today, and then I'm seeing two clients. No sense. Um, I'm doing outreach this morning, and I have three assessments this afternoon. Since launching in 2018, LA Door has enrolled more than 600 people in their services, but they've helped many more in the community. Today, we're visiting South LA's hotspots. So we're gonna go to hotspot five, four, and two. South Central Natives right here. I'm in the car with Damon Davis and Susie Urbina, two peer case managers with Project 180. We're headed out, but there's a stop first. We're over here at uh, Rouse on, uh, what is it, Vermont? 120th in Vermont. 120th in Vermont. We're gonna come over here and get a few cases of water. We can pass out, we'll probably go through most of them today. It's been over 100 or over 90 degrees every day this week, so it's very important for our clients to stay hydrated. Five days a week, the team visits hotspots. They visit the same places the same day of the week so encampment residents can know when to expect them. Even before clients enroll with LA Door, the team is out there providing assistance from water bottles, hygiene kits, to wellness checks, sometimes for months, to form relationships with people living in encampments. We arrive at our first encampment. It's between Inglewood and Compton. It's fenced in. There's graffiti everywhere, even on an LA Department of Transportation street sign that has made its way into the encampment. We wait for Damon to give us the green light. We're about to go into this encampment right here, and it's up and down as far as like safety. So I'm gonna go check with the supervisor and make sure that it's gonna be okay for you guys to come in, if you know what I mean. Damon estimates there's about 50 people living in the encampment. We walk closer. A 60-something man is sitting on a stool. He's wearing a Run DMZ t-shirt and is missing part of his right thumb. Damon says hello right away and hands him a bottle of water. Hey, how you doing, sir? Hey, bye. I'm doing pretty good, man. Uh, everyone calls me JR. Everything I try to do is just right. That's what JR stands for. I'm just an ordinary, older than dirt man, you know. JR says he's from Washington, but now he lives in a blue tent not far from where we're standing. 
I'm told that JR is kind of the mayor around here, watches out for everyone. These people are lost, and their only alternative is drugs, or stealing, or robbing somebody. There's no guidance. That's why LA Door is here. Roughly half of their clients struggle with substance use or mental health issues, and the other half struggle with both. LA Door's team has visited this encampment, Tent City, over a hundred times. It takes patience, but the team has found success by building relationships and trust with residents. One way they build that trust, no police escorts. Peer navigator Susie Urbina says bringing police to encampments makes residents standoffish and works against building any kind of trust. A lot of the other outreach teams don't even get out of their cars to talk to people. And they show up with police. A lot of the people that are living here, this whole encampment, are not okay with that. They see the police and they feel like, well, who are you guys looking for? Why are you guys here harassing us? Are you guys gonna give us all tickets? Who's getting taken to jail? So a lot of our clients are afraid to disclose any kind of information because they think they're gonna be put in jail or something. We don't need police to be the escorts in the field. Jamie Larson is a prosecutor in the LA City Attorney's Office. Three years ago, she spearheaded LA Door under her office. Before that, she worked with shelters and the Community Justice Center in San Francisco. One thing that's really nice about LA Door is that we aren't relying on officers to be the tip of the spear, so to speak, with the first contact. These teams are going out on their own, unaccompanied. LA Door also provides supportive housing and case management through its two other partners, Miss Hazel's House and West Angeles Community Development Corporation, or CDC. Most of LA Door's clients are referred through Project 180 and sometimes through police and the courts. Sometimes it happens quickly, sometimes it takes months or years, but whenever a person is ready to come indoors, LA Door has access to our own housing um, to place people in. At Ms. Hazel's house location in South LA, men, women, and transgender people can access this housing. 29 beds, in fact. It's meant to be something in between a shelter and in between a permanent solution. To get people who are ready to take next steps out of the hypervigilance, the toxicity, the danger of life in a homeless encampment, the hustle of life in a homeless encampment. And it is the clients who stabilize in housing who have the best long-term success. One of these clients is 53-year-old Andrea Smith. She came to LA Door in June 2019. Andrea's petite. She's wearing a maroon dress with matching maroon tights. Wavy black hair frames her face. But the first thing you notice about her is her smile. It's wide and infectious. It hides trauma including her time being homeless for nearly 40 years. I feel uh, unloved, unworthy, because sometimes when you're homeless, it feels like don't nobody care. It's only you by yourself, because that's how I felt. You know, sleeping at the park, when it's pouring down rain and everybody going to their house. I didn't have a house to go to. And you know, I don't like smelling and couldn't take a bath, couldn't wash my feet, you know, um, my teeth real yellow and, you know, hair falling out. Out there, it's like lost. I, my spirit was lost, my soul was lost. I was 
out there to slough. And she felt targeted by law enforcement. I've been harassed a lot since I've been homeless. One day I did have a tent up in there and the police knocked on the tent. And uh, it's like, you know, this is a, a $2,000 fine and you can't be here and all that like that. Well, all we want to do is to sleep. It was like hard because the police, every time they see us, they mess with us. Andrea has been homeless since the age of 16. And she's been arrested three times for domestic violence, substance use, and drug paraphernalia. I was looking at 25 years to life for cutting um, my partner, you know, because I was in my addiction. I was using crack cocaine. I didn't have nothing to live for. Andrea's trauma didn't stop there. When she was eight months pregnant with her first child, she says she was shot in the belly by gang members. I wasn't banging. I was just at the wrong place at the um, wrong time. They shot me in my stomach. My baby lived. It was 10 pounds, 13 ounces. I've been through a lot, molested, you know, um, family members, and, you know, and drugs. You know, losing my son. At one point, Andrea's 20-year-old son was shot in the back of his head by gangs. She also lost her mother to cancer. I was getting um, a bruise. I was in domestic violence relationship out there. It was sad because I needed help. I wanted help, but then I didn't know how to reach out to get help. Andrea's experiences are not uncommon. According to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, nearly 45,000 homeless people nationally are victims of domestic violence. Scholars have even noted how trauma is both a cause and effect of homelessness, pointing out victimization as a contributor to homelessness. Before coming to L.A. Door, Andrea recalls a particularly difficult point, having to clean herself at a jack-in-the-box. The people's up in there, they let me come in the bathroom every morning and wash my face and clean my body. They also gave me soap and towels and stuff. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. People look down on you. You know, it's like, oh, she homeless, you know, or I have an odor, I'm smelling because I can't keep my clothes clean. I can't, you know, wash my face. One day, Andrea was done. I was sitting on the grass and I just took a hit of some dope. And I was like, I'm tired of this. So I took the pipe, I threw her down, I got up and I went to Project 180 or 46 in Broadway. And that was my end to get my life back together. She knocked on the door and met Michael, the case manager there. L.A. Door helped Andrea get a California ID, birth certificate, medical insurance, drove her to appointments, even lifted her self-esteem. She was enrolled in a three-month program to help her with her addiction. The public defender's office is looking into clearing up her criminal record. And she's been sober for two years. Through their partnerships with the Los Angeles County Public Defender's Office, L.A. Door is helping dozens of clients clear convictions and at work on active, ongoing cases. But the expungement process can take time. Jamie says L.A. Door helps clients quash bench warrants, reduce charges from felonies to misdemeanors, get in compliance with probation, and have cases dismissed through collaboration with the city attorney's office. These violations can be pretty minor, like failure to appear, jaywalking, and littering. 
we're taking active steps to remove these legal barriers, which I don't know that many prosecutors' offices across the country are able to do. It's been really helpful for the Project 180 team, the West Angeles team, to be able to have these conversations with clients and say, look, you've got this warrant out and we can resolve it. We can address this together. Let me put you in touch with the public defender. Many times, Elidor helps a client in court. When the Elidor client walks into court, they're accompanied by their case manager to help them feel a little bit more comfortable. And they also have a letter saying what they've been doing in the program. For Andrea, she says she wishes police would have tried something different than blaming her when she was homeless. A better approach for me is like, can I help you? That'd be better than accusing you of doing something or, you know, talk to them or let them um, explain themselves. Something just like, well, you did this and you did that, and, you know. You the day we meet, Andrea tells me through L.A. Dora's help of a housing voucher, she's now looking for a place of her own. I am so forever being grateful. And it feels so good today that I don't have to drink, I don't have to smoke dope, I don't have to do none of that. All I can do today is live, you know, live. And I'm happy. And I just, it don't get no better than this, y'all. <laughs> Not far from where Andrea Smith found herself homeless for years was another homeless woman, Annie Moody. Miss Moody. Hi, Sergeant Avalay from Los Angeles Police Department, ma'am. Yeah. It's time to take down your tent. That's Annie saying, I guess that means I'm under arrest again. Footage from a 2013 LAPD body cam shows officers walking up to her blue tent. Its front cover is slightly unzipped. While she sits inside of her tent, a police officer speaks to her. Ms. Moody, I need you to take down your tent for me. It's past 6 o'clock. It's about... A little over, a little past eight o'clock right now. Within a minute of approaching her tent, LAPD arrests Annie. Ma'am, are you refusing to take down your tent for me? Okay, Miss Moody, this officer's gonna search you. Okay, very good, guys. I think we're good to go. In the mid-2000s, Annie Moody became homeless in Los Angeles. Over the next several years, she was arrested by LAPD more than any other homeless person in the city, over a hundred times. Off and on, she spent a total of 15 months in jail. The amount of money that they spent prosecuting this woman, they could have bought her a house. Aaron Jansen is a deputy public defender for Los Angeles County. 70 million was not able to reach Annie, but we talked with Aaron who defended her in 2013. We couldn't figure out why they were picking on this one woman who was homeless. She wasn't committing any crimes. The crime that she was supposedly committing was sitting, sleeping, or lying on the sidewalk. That was a misdemeanor under the Los Angeles Municipal Code. He's talking about 4118, the city's sit-lie law, which makes it a criminal offense to sit, lie, or sleep on a public sidewalk anywhere in the city of Los Angeles. City-wide, that's over 500 square miles with nowhere to sit, lie, or sleep outside. That's an area bigger than San Francisco, Chicago, and New York City. Most of Annie's charges had to do with 4118. Though some were for disorderly conduct, 
marijuana possession and selling cigarettes from her tent. Still, Aaron believes the LAPD were directly targeting Annie. From the body camera footage, you can see that there are other tents in the vicinity, but police go directly to hers. They would order her to remove her tent and she would never do it. She would say, just take me to jail. And so that's what they kept doing. And they would just use that pressure to try to break her, to get her to take a deal where she would be on probation. And she would never do that. At some point, Erin heard that the police referred to her as Operation Bad Moody. Her last name is Moody. And he subpoenaed all of the police text messages and emails. When I read through them, I was really appalled. They were making fun of her. Um, It clearly showed that they were targeting her. They were celebrating when she gets arrested and convicted. The messages between police officers about Annie included, Take care of her for me. You guys got her. Congrats. If she's out in a couple of days, we'll do it all again. I'll be damned if I'm going to let her thumb her nose at us. We will take care of it. She's going back to jail ASAP. The email exchanges between police officers also showed that they called Annie a problem child. But all this patrol didn't come cheap. Court and law enforcement records analyzed by the Los Angeles Times showed that prosecuting Annie cost taxpayers at least a quarter of a million dollars. When you look at the judicial resources of the time to take to do these jury trials, the public defender's fees, the DA's time, the judge's time, the juror's time, the courtroom time, the LAPD's time to book her and to constantly, you know, have to assign this manpower to her. Um, When you add it all up, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars just to prosecute this one woman for sitting on the sidewalk. Aaron challenged Annie's convictions in court arguing that she was exercising her constitutional right to go to trial. He called what the police were doing. Selective prosecution, that they were prosecuting her vindictively because she was exercising a constitutional right. If you're being targeted in violation of the Constitution, then you have a right to have that case dismissed. And Aaron had the emails to argue his case. I got these emails to try to show that, look, they had this whole operation just targeting her because she always goes to trial, she always fights her cases. Ultimately, the court didn't agree, but the judge did end up releasing Annie and giving her credit for time served. And those emails? was somewhat embarrassing for them. And so after that, they stopped prosecuting her pretty much. The Los Angeles Police Department told 70 million At this point, we are not able to comment. Quality of life laws, like the kinds that were used to penalize Annie so many times, are used across the country. And a lot of them target those who have no housing options. Many cities impose camping bans that restrict a broad range of activities like sleeping outside and the use of camping paraphernalia, like blankets. The National Homelessness Law Center found that 72% of 187 cities surveyed have at least one law restricting so-called camping in public. Roughly half of cities surveyed also have laws restricting living in cars. And within the last decade or so, 
these laws have increased by over 200%. In Los Angeles, there are over a dozen of these types of laws. They bar people from sleeping on the sidewalk, living in a car, storing personal property in public, like clothes or a tent. City data shows that between 2018 and 2019, there were nearly 40,000 service requests to clear homeless encampments. And during the first six months of 2020, the LAPD used force 444 times on homeless people, making up 36% of department-wide uses of force, according to the LAPD biannual report on homelessness. A lot of these laws just mean that somebody's going to get a civil infraction or a ticket. Sarah Rankin is a professor at Seattle University's School of Law, where she directs the Homeless Rights Advocacy Project. She specializes in the criminalization of homelessness. The impact goes beyond a fine, says Professor Rankin. It's not simply a slap on the wrist. That ticket can mutate into a misdemeanor. And so once someone is saddled with a misdemeanor, that means that they're then ineligible to uh, access shelter, food, services, and a whole host of other benefits that might otherwise support that person's ability to emerge from homelessness. They're like compounding barriers. Landlords and public housing managers may discriminate against prospective renters with a criminal record, a history of eviction, or a lack of rental history. If you apply for a voucher like Section 8, you'll have to go through a criminal background check, which could make you ineligible for housing assistance. Recent national data is hard to come by, but the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness, the federal group responsible for preventing homelessness, estimates it costs taxpayers $87 per day to jail a person compared with $28 per day to provide shelter. And none of these criminalizing policies and practices have proven to end homelessness. Why? Experts say it's because it doesn't address underlying causes, like lack of housing. What we want to be able to do, ultimately, is really aggressively bring quality, permanent supportive housing to scale. Professor Rankin again. We need to be shifting our funding priorities away from law enforcement-led responses, which are shown to be among the most expensive and least effective interventions, toward non-punitive solutions like supportive housing and outreach workers. Today, nearly 80 communities and three states, including New Orleans and Virginia, have ended veteran homelessness through housing that is at times coupled with supportive services like mental health and substance abuse treatment. Like L.A. Dorr, there's another group using a housing and criminal justice diversion approach called the Office of Diversion and Reentry, or ODR. In 2015, the Los Angeles Board of Supervisors, authored and supported by Supervisors Mark Ridley-Thomas and Sheila Kuhl, created ODR, a county program that contracts with community-based providers that diverts individuals from incarceration into housing and supportive services. This is essentially the way in which we speak the language of alternatives to incarceration. Supervisor Mark Ridley-Thomas recently voted along with the five-member Board of Supervisors to expand ODR's program, 
with the goal of diverting 500 people in the next year. It's not rocket science. It's so simple. All you need to do is keep people safe by giving them housing, um, community, uh, showing them that we're really here to stay. Like We consider our commitment to our patients for life. Dr. Kristen Ochoa is the medical director at ODR. When we say permanent supportive housing, we really mean it. It's forever. Today, ODR has diverted over 5,900 individuals from jail to community-based services through their programs, placing a little over half in housing. 90% of the program's participants have kept stable housing and stayed out of jail or prison. It's also cost-effective. ODR's diversion program costs about $110 a day, compared to a day in jail, which they say costs over $600 a day. Earlier this year, after COVID-19 hit, California Governor Gavin Newsom made a big announcement. He was launching Project Roomkey, a first-in-the-nation plan to temporarily house tens of thousands of vulnerable homeless people. Project Roomkey would identify 15,000 hotel rooms throughout the state of California. The governor's plan would use converted hotel and motel rooms, even RVs, to safely isolate medically vulnerable and elderly homeless people. Project Roomkey would house just 14% of the state's total homeless population. Still, the program has temporarily housed 22,000 people across the state since April. My name is Heidi Marston. I'm the executive director of the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. Or LASA for short. Through LASA's partnership with Project Roomkey, nearly 4,000 homeless people in Los Angeles County received rooms. We continue to grapple with is how do we make progress when the number of people who are falling in and coming to the front door of our homeless system is outpaced by the, the pace at which we are able to move people out. At the end of June, Governor Newsom announced Project Home Key, calling it the next phase when it comes to the state's response to protect homeless people during COVID-19. The $600 million program is expected to help California cities and counties purchase hotels, apartments, and other buildings and convert them into long-term housing for homeless people. People will go. We saw it with Project Room Key when we're offering people hotels and motels. Um, we're filling them up within a week and they're staying full. It's about creating the resources and giving people the opportunity to move inside because they will. In Andrea Smith's case, it wasn't the tickets or jail time that turned her life around. Housing was the key factor. From the grass to a bedroom, it's wonderful. From sweeping the floor with leaves to a broom, I'm grateful. From eating with my fingers to a fork or a spoon, thank you. I have my own bed. I didn't have no pillow. Now I got five or six pillows on my bed. I'm very grateful to have this place. I'm very grateful for L.A. Doors, Project 180. I am very grateful for Miss Hazel House. It's clear from listening to Andrea Smith, Stephen Baker, and others that programs like L.A. Door, ODR, and Project Roomkey don't just have potential. Without a doubt, a public health and housing-first approach to homelessness are transforming lives. Now, it's a question of whether we'll see the policy changes 
and investment needed to actually end homelessness and the criminalization of it. For 70 Million, I'm Sarah McClure. You've been listening to the podcast 70 Million, where housing, not jails, is the answer to homelessness or making contact. For a full list of credits, guests, and more information about the issue, please visit our website at radioproject.org. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.